Well, great. I want to welcome uh, everyone to the LSE this evening. Uh, my name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm the head of international relations, uh, the international relations department, and uh, the director of the U.S. Center, which is hosting uh, tonight's lecture. Uh, I'm very pleased to um, to welcome tonight's speaker, uh, Amy Goldstein. You should be able to find a seat in the back there who has, has done so much as a staff writer um, over the past 30 years at the Washington Post to draw our attention um, to uh, social policy issues. Currently, she's the Post National um, Healthcare Policy Writer, but she's done a lot of different things in her uh, career, serving as a, a White House reporter, and she's covered um, a lot of very notable um, news events, um, including five of the past six Supreme Court nominations. You don't get out of here tonight without giving us your views of the Kavanaugh nomination before the Senate. Um, along the way, um, Amy has racked up um, <clears throat> a number of prestigious awards uh, and fellowships, including the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting on, on uh, the 9-11 attacks and Washington's response to the attacks. Uh, she was also a 2009 uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, finalist for national reporting, co-reporting on the medical treatment of uh, immigrants by um, the U.S. government. She's held fellowships at, um, at Harvard's Neiman Foundation for Journalism, uh, the Radcliffe Institute for um, Advanced Study, and the Woodrow Wilson uh, International Center for Scholars. Um, she's a native of Rochester, New York. Anybody from Rochester? Kind of? That's like a, a kind of? Like, what is that, Buffalo? What, what's that? <laughs> couple, we got a couple out here. Uh, and she received her bachelor's degree at, at Brown University. Um, so she is here tonight. Um, to talk about her best-selling um, book, which has been extensively reviewed, um, named by the Financial Times as the business book um, uh, of the year in 2017 and listed among um, the New York Times notable books for that year as well. So what we've asked Amy to do is provide an overview of the book. Um, uh, she'll talk for about 40, 45 minutes, um, and then we'll we'll open it up to um, to questions. But before Amy takes the floor, just a few quick public service announcements or housekeeping announcements. Uh, first, I would ask everybody to, uh, if you haven't already, please turn your phone to um, to silent because we're being recorded. And it'd be great if people's phones don't um, they're not ringing during the event. Um, second, for those of you on Twitter tonight, the suggested hashtag is LSC Janesville. And finally, um, uh, not most importantly, but importantly, there are copies of Amy's book for sale uh, outside um, the, um, uh, the theater here after we wrap up, and she'll be sticking around to um, sign them. So with that, please join me in giving Amy a big LSU welcome. Thank you, Peter, for that very generous introduction, and uh, thank you all for coming out on a really nice early fall night. So I'm going to be talking tonight about um, a small city, one small city in southern Wisconsin. But it's really a story about anyone anywhere who has lost a job or worried about losing a job or cared about somebody who's lost a job. 
This week is my first time talking about Janesville in London. And um, I was eager to come here because I figure that the UK is no stranger to deindustrialization, which is what the story is at heart about. Um, you've lost mines, you've lost shipbuilding, you've lost factories, including uh, your own auto factories, just like the Janesville assembly plant. And I was thinking, as I was flying over here, that in a way, Janesville, Wisconsin is a rank amateur at um, deindustrialization compared to what parts of uh, your country have gone through over a period of years. So I'm especially glad to be here tonight talking about uh, an experience that is both particular to one southern Wisconsin city um, and also familiar to all of you. So that's now, but I thought I would start by telling you how my time in Janesville began. I first stepped into Janesville on July 26, 2011. I was on an exploratory mission, trying to get a feel for what had been going on in this town. And I'd lined up a few people in advance to see. The first person I met with was an old-time journalist in Janesville named Stan Milam. Stan had run the State House Bureau uh, for the Janesville Gazette, the local daily newspaper, in the state capital of Wisconsin in Madison for years. But by the time I met him, he had already left the newspaper and was working as an education consultant, had an office um, downtown in what was, during the first half of the 20th century, the world headquarters of the Parker Pen Company, which also comes from Janesville. By the time I met Stan in his office, this building had been renovated into offices, about half of which were empty. Stan was in his 60s, he had grown up in Janesville, and we talked nonstop for a few hours about the history of his community, what it used to be like, what it was like now. And finally, he asked me a question I've been hoping he would ask. He said, would you like to see the assembly plant? That's the assembly plant. So I got into the car of this man I had met a few hours earlier, and we drove through downtown, down Centerway to a street called Delavan Drive, turned left on Delavan Drive, and there, just a couple blocks down, was this enormous dead auto plant, 4.8 million square feet of nothing going on. And as we got closer, Stan admitted to me something that surprised me. Um, I could already tell that Stan was a tough-minded reporter, and he told me that first day something I came to believe, which is that he's a bit of a cynic. What he told me was that he hated to see this closed plant. I asked him why, and he told me that his father had worked at the plant, and as his boy, Stan remembered, he knew how proud his dad had been to have finally earned enough money um, from wages that he was earning on the GM assembly line that he could afford to buy the family's first Chevy. Now that hit me hard. I thought of a seasoned Seneca reporter cringed at the sight of the most interesting thing that had happened in his hometown in quite a while. That told me something powerful had been going on in the city. Something about identity and how life had been and how people expected it to be, but it wasn't that way anymore. Now if you're a journalist like me, that gets your juices flowing. And I kept going back for several years until this book was written. So what was I doing in Janesville that day on this exploratory mission? I didn't know this community. I didn't know anyone there. I think I had been in Wisconsin once in my life at that, that point. So it wasn't a familiar place to me. But um, in uh, 2009, 2010, a little bit after the end of what we in the U.S. call the Great Recession, and 
people elsewhere sometimes call the global financial crisis, I had begun thinking about writing a close-up of what really happens when work goes away, when good jobs go away. At the time, I was covering a broad social policy beat for the Washington Post. Um, I had a lot of latitude. I could do a lot of things in this job, which is a good thing if you're a newspaper reporter like me. So part of what I was doing was I started to write some stories about things that I didn't yet know were called recession effects. In other words, what difference it makes on the ground that the economy was really bad. So I did a story about people in southwest Florida who were falling out of the middle class and onto the welfare rolls. I just spent a couple days hanging out in a welfare office watching people apply. Um, and this is what I wrote. Here in Florida as elsewhere, the new face of welfare includes people who have tumbled from the middle class and higher after losing jobs, savings, and self-reliance. And some are returning to welfare years after they thought they had found permanent work and independence. In the county that includes Fort Myers, that's uh, southwest Florida, 40% of the 812 people who applied for welfare in October, that's the month I was there, a uh, month before I was there, had never before asked for help. Then I did a story um, a couple months later out of Columbia, South Carolina. South Carolina at the time had the nation's second highest unemployment rate. And this story was about the strains on the private sector parts of the social safety net. Um, places like nonprofit food pantries, they were just absolutely slammed with more clients than they'd ever seen before, some of whom had formerly been their donors. And I wrote, the Salvation Army gets so many calls from people desperate for help with overdue utility bills that one morning its phone system crashed. The Family Service Center of South Carolina is deluged with clients seeking free counseling for delinquent mortgages. And the shelves at the Life Force Food Pantry run out of rice, canned stew meat, and black-eyed peas in less than an hour. So those were the kind of stories I was doing. And it really struck me that this was something profound that was going on in the United States. I mean, if you think about the culture mythology of the United States, it's all about upward mobility. It's not about falling down anywhere, certainly not falling out of the middle class. And as I was starting to think that this was a very big deal and something pretty new, I started paying close attention to what kind of stories journalism colleagues of mine were writing about the economy. And I noticed that they fell mostly into two uh, strains. One was there were a lot of stories um, about economic policies and political fighting about what the government, federal government, state government should or should not be doing. Uh, President Obama was pretty new at the time. He had uh, proposed a stimulus package to Congress that Congress went along with. Um, he agreed to continue the beginning of some bailout plans that his predecessor, George W. Bush, had initiated, um, rescuing banks and uh, auto uh, auto companies. Um, There's a lot of debate about whether these were correct policies, so that was one kind of story. The second strain was during the midterm elections of 2012. Now this is going to sound quaint given what happened in 2016, but even then there was a lot of reporting about voter anger and voter disenchantment. And what began to occur to me uh, was that I didn't see much fusing of these two strains. And I had this idea that you couldn't really understand where the public's disenchantment and anxiety were coming from if you didn't think about their economic experiences or their fears. And that wasn't what was being written about much. 
so later I came across a study um, done by the Pew Research Center. As you can see, it's a study of nearly 10,000 stories, um, the first half of 2009, which was towards the end of the uh, official period of the Great Recession. And it was categorizing what these stories were about. So as you can see, there are lots of stories about the bailout and banking, as we just talked about the stimulus plan. And way over to the right, that red box, stories about the effects of the economy on average Americans, 5% of these stories. Well, that seemed to me a pretty big gap. It was such a big gap in my mind that I became so obsessed about this, I did something I had never done in my career, which was take time off from my job to pursue something larger than a newspaper piece of work. I had this idea that I wanted to find one perfectly ordinary community um, that was harmed by the bad economy and just look close up at what losing good work does to people and to the texture of an ordinary place. So um, that's how I ended up in Janesville. Now why Janesville, you might ask? Because there were a lot of communities that were going through hard times at this point. So that's where Janesville is, southern Wisconsin. Um, I had first heard of Janesville when I was doing these couple of recession effect stories for my day job. But I never went there at the time. Um, somebody had mentioned to me that there was this um, small city in Wisconsin that I had never heard of that lost this big old auto plant. Um, but the closing had just happened a few months before. And a lot of the people who had worked at General Mose itself were still collecting what was called subpay, um, uh, union kind of post-employment benefits in addition to government unemployment benefits. Um, so the pain hadn't really begun to sink in yet, so I never went there. But when I began thinking about um, what kind of place might be good to do this bigger piece of work, it just lingered in my mind. And I thought about other places. This is before I went anywhere, before I ever stepped into Janesville. And every time I thought about somewhere else, I thought, no, you really want to go check out Janesville. <coughs> now, this made me nervous because even when I pick a geographic setting for a story for the newspaper, I'm pretty compulsive about this. I make lists of criteria and different places and the pros and the cons. And something kept saying to me, check out Janesville. So, you know, I had a couple friends I was like worrying aloud with, like, why am I drawn to this city I've never been in? And they could have said, like, relax, you've got like several decades of news judgment behind you on this one. <laughs> so I started to think about what is it that makes this compelling to me? So I just want to explain to you some of the criteria. First of all, um, I wanted a place that had never before been part of the Rust Belt um, because I wanted to tell the story of what this bad recession had done, not uh, be looking at the accumulative effect of a few decades of economic decay. Now, this Janesville assembly plant had started turning out tractors just after World War I in 1919 and started making Chevrolets on Valentine's Day of 1923. And the plant had kept going all those decades until it closed down two days before Christmas of 2008. So this was the first time Janesville was in economic trouble. So that appealed to me. Of course, I needed a place that had lost a lot of jobs. There's Janesville, welcome to Janesville. That is the Rock County Job Center. That's where people went. It was sort of ground zero when people lost these jobs and didn't know what to do and they could get advice about how to apply for benefits, maybe go back to school. 
a lot of people were showing up at this place. Um, in 2008 and 2009, according to federal figures, about 9,000 jobs disappeared from Rock County, Wisconsin, which is the county for which Janesville is the biggest community, which is the county seat. Unemployment in that county uh, in June of 2008, which was the month that General Motors announced it was going to be shutting down this assembly plant, was 5.4%. By the following March, uh, just a couple months after the plant actually closed, unemployment in the county was 13%, over 13%. So Janesville checked that box, lots of lost jobs. I also wanted to try to find a place that, to the extent possible, mirrored the national pattern of job losses. I mean, I understood that no place was going to be able to stand in for everywhere. But I wanted a place that was roughly parallel to what was going on nationally in this recession. So the largest proportion of jobs that disappeared in the U.S. in the Great Recession were in the manufacturing center. That was certainly true in Janesville. A lot of the jobs that disappeared were been ones that paid pretty well but hadn't required a lot of formal education. That was true of these auto jobs. General Motors had been paying at the end, most of its workers, good wages, $28 an hour. Um, it's sometimes called the man recession. More men than women lost jobs. That was true in Janesville. So there were ways in which it was just roughly parallel to the national picture of job loss during this bad recession. Janesville, it turns out, also fit nicely into the sweep of US history. On my very first visit there, Stan Milam, the journalist who uh, took me to see the plant, told me that I should find a video of then-Senator Barack Obama giving a big economic speech right inside the Janesville Assembly plant uh, the winter of 2008. Uh, he was running for president for the first time. It was just before the Wisconsin presidential primary. He was uh, campaigning around the state uh, trying to get votes. And I remember finding a YouTube um, video of the speech and just watching it on my own laptop, and I just had goosebumps when I heard him say this sentence, the promise of Janesville is the promise of America. I thought, I want to write that sentence in my book. <laughs> um, another thing that he said in that speech was, basically, you know, if the country elects him and follows his economic prescription, he said, this is the quote, this plant is going to be here for another hundred years. It closed that December. So that struck me. Going back in time, um, the Janesville Assembly Plant had been part of a very famous um, sit-down strike, General Motors sit-down strike in the late 1930s. Um, that was the strike that um, cemented the United Auto Workers as labor representative for, um, for the entire U.S. Um, uh, auto industry. So Janesville was part of that strike. In the 1940s, during World War II, um, Janesville's assembly plant had become part of the war um, home front when it stopped making vehicles and it started turning out 16-millimeter artillery shells for the war. And I could go on, but there were just these lovely moments in which Janesville had this kind of zealot-like quality that I thought might be good if I wanted to write a microcosm and show how this community fit into the sweep of U.S. history. And as I said, Parker Penn also came from Janesville, and it had its big 20th century moments. Uh, there's an image of um, uh, then-General Dwight Eisenhower holding up two Parker Pens and a V for victory sign. I thought that was good. <laughs> now, before I knew much else about this community, before I'd ever been there, I knew that Janesville had interest in politics. It's a big union town that tends to vote Democratic. But its congressmen, who had been elected at the age of 28, 
was Paul Ryan. Janesville is his hometown. Uh, this was a year that I chose Janesville before uh, Mitt Romney in 2012 picked Paul Ryan as his vice presidential running mate. And I will never forget the August morning, about a year after I began doing this research, when everybody in my life who knew I'd been visiting Janesville emailed me all at once and said, that's your place. <laughs> um, and then, you know, a couple years after that, in 2015, he became the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. But he's a Janesville guy, and I thought it'd be interesting to have this very conservative congressman whose district has some Republican parts, but that's why he keeps getting reelected until he chose not to run again this year. Um, uh, might be some interesting tension between this congressman and the union identity of his hometown. Uh, Wisconsin also, at the time I began to do this work, had just elected as governor a man named Scott Walker, who's still governor, who's a very conservative, outspoken Republican. So I thought if part of what I wanted to look at was what effect does job loss have on political culture, Jamesville might be an interesting place to find some tensions. And I've got to admit that I just thought Janesville was a cool, all-American-sounding name. <laughs> just appealed to me as a writer. So those are just some of the reasons why the summer of 2011 I made an exploratory trip to this place I'd never been, I met an old-time journalist who took me to see the main interesting thing that had happened in his town, even though he didn't want to see it. So then came the question of how was I going to tell this story? And I decided I wanted this story to feel like um, a kaleidoscope, um, so that you're seeing what this experience of job loss and what it did to the town looked like from different people's vantage points. Um, the story is a five-year chronology from uh, the time the plant closings announced in uh, late spring of 2008 through 2013. That's kind of the body of the story. And then there's an appendix that catches up to closer to now. Um, and I met a lot of people in town before I figured out who were going to be people of the story. This was not something that I, I mean, I can politely say I was not time efficient about choosing the characters of my book. Because I felt as if I really needed to understand what was happening and what different people were trying to do before I could figure out who were the people who illustrated those things. Um, so there were a number of people who hadn't uh, lost their jobs but were trying in various ways to help. There's a social studies teacher um, who starts noticing that some of her students who've been from middle-class families weren't doing so well. And she persuaded her um, school principal to let her have um, an unused storeroom that she called the Parker Closet. So the high schools in Janesville are named Parker for Parker Penn and Craig High School for Craig, the man who persuaded General Motors to come to town. So kind of these founding industrialists are woven into the identity of the two, uh, two high schools in town. So um, the social teacher created this thing called the Parker Closet in which she collected donations to the day, she's still doing it, of used jeans and some food and uh, school supplies and used prom dresses so girls who can't afford to buy dresses can still go to the dances in the spring. She's one of the people whose story runs through um, from my book. Um, the man who runs the job center, this place, um, uh, is one of the people whose stories I, um, I trace. Um, there's a school social worker whose specialty was working with homeless kids, and she started to notice um, during this period this big surge in unaccompanied homeless teenagers. I mean, Janesville, like any place, had richer neighborhoods and poor neighborhoods, but never had a big poor population. Suddenly there are all these homeless teenagers. Um, so she and the social worker from the next school district over 
um, create something called Project 1649, um, which was to raise money to create housing for um, unaccompanied homeless kids. It got its name from the number of minutes and hours, hours and minutes, that's better, um, uh, between the end of one school day and the start of the next, um, which these social workers thought was a very long period of time for a teenager who didn't have a stable place to go home. The main banker in town is a character in the story. She's the co-founder of a new economic development coalition that's trying really hard to do the very hard work of bringing new jobs in and persuading little business that was still there not to leave. So there are all these people from this kind of kaleidoscopic different vantage points who are trying to figure out what to do. But the main people are the auto workers, and I have three families that I chose um, because they illustrated what I came to think of was different choices that people made when there were no good choices left in town. And that's why it really took me a long time to pick these families, because I had to understand what people were doing. So I thought I would just tell you a little bit about these families. Um, this is the Vaughn family. Um, Dave Vaughn um, was a GM retiree when I met him. I met him on that very first trip I made to town. Um, he was one of the two retirees who was volunteering to run the United Auto Workers local, um, because there were no more workers to get release time from their jobs uh, to be staffing the union. And when I met him, I mean, I asked him something that I asked every person I met for a long time when I started making these visits. I said, who else should I get to know? And uh, Dave Fawn said, you should really talk to my son, Mike, the guy in the middle, but he'll never talk to you. It's pretty private. So it took a little while and Mike and I started talking. <laughs> and Mike, um, uh, was the third generation in his family uh, to be on the uh, UAW Executive Committee. It was a big union family in town, one of only two families I know of in Janesville with three generations of men who were helping to run the union local. And Mike hadn't worked at General Motors. He'd worked at the biggest supplier to General Motors, a place called Lear Seating, um, that had 800 workers. And Lear made uh, seats only for the Janesville assembly plant and it was called just-in-time production, which meant that seats were delivered to the assembly plant three hours before they were bolted into GM vehicles. Now you can imagine if a company is working in that close lockstep with an assembly plant and the plant closes, what's going to happen to all the Lear workers? Their jobs go away too. So Barb had worked at Lear, um, that's his wife, they had met there. She had been laid off the summer before uh, when one shift went down. She was already back in school. Mike gets to stay a few months after the plant close, his plant closes um, because the plant was being taken apart. There's like this scalable crew that was just taken apart the assembly line. Um, and I remember he told me at one point that it was finally empty, just like he was feeling inside. And during this period of a few months, he was starting to look for jobs. He was starting to look for other union jobs. I mean, this labor identity was really deep inside him. And he could not find any labor, um, labor, labor jobs in a couple state radius around Janesville. And he starts thinking about what did the skills he had developed as a union leader equip him to do if he were going to go back and retrain as his wife was already doing. Um, and he thinks, well, the technical college, and I'll talk about the school in a minute, um, had begun a brand new program in human resources management. 
um, and maybe some of the union skills he had, he could help doing human resources work. But it was a pretty hard decision to go from the labor side of things to the management side of things. And Mike eventually makes peace with it. He decides if he can help people from one side, he can help people from the other side. But there comes a moment in the story where Mike has to admit to his father, Dave, what he's about to do. You'll have to read the book to see how that turns out. <laughs> this is Matt, um, Matt Wopat. Um, the Wopats um, are the second family that I, uh, whose experiences I trace over several years. And um, like a lot of people at the assembly plant, um, Matt's father had worked there. Um, his father was kind of a big guy in the plant, um, head of employee assistance and a local politician. And um, Matt was kind of a quieter figure. He had been at the plant uh, for 13 years when he lost his job. Um, his father has a retirement party, um, knowing that his son's going to lose his job in a couple weeks and just feels guilty as can be about it. And um, his father, like many people in town, uh, kept saying in this case to his son, it's going to be okay, this plant's going to open again. There's a huge amount of denial about this. Um, I mean, when I first arrived in town, another thing that Stan Milam told me was that you're going to hear a lot of people saying, just wait, the plant's going to open back up. This was, I showed up two and a half years after it closed. I was a little incredulous. Um, but I kept hearing people say it. And in fact, in 2013, um, I went to um, the high school uh, graduation of one of Matt's daughters with the family. And Marv, who's kind of a larger-than-life figure, rides up on his Harley, gives me a hug and says, just you wait, this plant's going to reopen, 2013. So Matt's collecting his unemployment benefits, his subpay, hoping things are going to come back, but they don't. And he thinks, well, he's got to figure out at least a plan B if it doesn't reopen. So he goes back to school um, to train to become a utility worker because the word was that um, there were a lot of older utility workers um, who were eligible for retirement, so his jobs were going to open up, and it wasn't going to be paying $28 an hour the way General Motors have, but it was going to be decent wages. So he goes back to school. It's a year-long program. About halfway through, he starts to hear that because these older workers, whatever retirement savings they had, had in many cases been lost in the bad economy in the recession, um, they weren't leaving work so fast. So Matt and a bunch of his buddies... Um, go to their instructor and say, look, if we stick out the program, like, what are the odds we're going to find jobs around here? And the instructor levels with them and says, not very good. This was very bad news because this was just after um, Matt, who's got a wife who was working part-time at a minimum wage job and three daughters, um, was starting to fall behind on house payments. And he's getting really worried that they're going to lose their house, which other people in town have been doing. So he makes a decision that he had sworn he was never going to do. If you were a General Motors worker, not one of the supplier worker, companies workers, but a GMer, you had transfer rights. Um, a lot of these people had pretty good seniority, so you had rights to take a job at another General Motors plant somewhere else in the country. And a lot of people have been doing that. People were taking jobs in Texas and in Kansas City and in Michigan, I mean, places pretty far away. And jobs came open in um, Fort Wayne, Indiana, which was close in comparison. It was only 300 miles away from Janesville. And these people were called um, GM gypsies. 
And they were called gypsies because most of them did not move to where these jobs were. They didn't move their families. They were commuting these long distances. Um, so Matt figures the only way to get his family's economic circumstances straightened out again was to become a gypsy. Uh, so he begins to do this um, in 2010. And to this day, he is still leaving home on Monday mornings, working through the week in Fort Wayne in an apartment that looks like a shrine to Wisconsin. Without, don't even know uh, the Green Bay Packers is the football team, big deal in Wisconsin. He and his roommate both have lots of Green Bay Packers stuff around their apartment. Um, uh, and um, he's got several more years to go until he's eligible for the kind of retirement his dad's been drawing several years for now. Last family is the Whitaker family. This is Tammy Whitaker and one of her daughters, um, Kasia. Uh, Jared Whitaker, um, Tammy's husband and Casey's dad, who's not in the, um, the photo, um, was a GMer for almost exactly the same length of time as Matt Wilpat. And unlike Matt, he just cannot bring himself to um, leave his family behind. He also has three kids. Um, and this is the family of the three that really falls out of the middle class in the story. Uh, he eventually takes um, a General Motors buyout. There's a whole series of buyouts that are being offered because General Motors was just in terrible financial shape and was trying to shed parts of its workforce. So Jared ends up taking, um, after a few years, a buyout that pays just a couple thousand dollars. Um, but the big deal was that it offered them six extra months of health insurance. So that's why he severed his rights to ever go back to work for General Motors anywhere in the country. And um, Casey's a twin. She's got a sister, uh, Melissa. Um, I met them when they were in the fall of their um, senior year of high school. And they were just great kids, taking advanced courses and going to college and really well-liked by their teachers, um, church-going family. And um, when I met them, Casey and Alyssa were working five part-time jobs between them. Uh, partly to save some money for going to a branch of the University of Wisconsin Public University, and partly to slip their parents um, money now and then to help pay bills. And there's a scene in the story where um, Kasia and Alyssa take their mom, Tammy, grocery shopping uh, late one night so they won't run into people they know in town. And at the checkout counter, they hand her mom, uh, their mom the bills to pay for the groceries. So those are some of the family's um, stories that I write about. And as I said, I really wanted to be close up to what the experience of losing work is like and what kind of decisions people were making when good work wasn't around. Now, I also wanted to, in some way, make clear that these close-ups were representative of broader truths in this, in this community. Um, so being a kind of nerdy <coughs> journalist at heart, um, I did two empirical pieces of research in which I affiliated with some academics for these two studies. Um, one of them was a look at job retraining. This was the campus, Black Hawk Technical College, uh, that uh, during the few years after all these jobs went away, had the biggest enrollment surge of any um, branch of Wisconsin's technical college system in its uh, century-old history. Um, small school, a couple thousand laid-off factory workers showed up. And I was really interested in the question of job retraining. I felt like if I was looking at what happens when work goes away, the sequel question was, 
can you climb your way back up into the middle class? Can you get another job? What does it take? And what do we as a United States society and what does the U.S. government recommend people do about this? And, you know, it strikes me that job retraining is one of the few economic policies on which Republicans and Democrats agree. I mean, they have slightly different ideas about how to do it, but it's a very widely popular uh, notion uh, and policy. A lot of federal money goes into retraining what's called dislocated workers, which these folks were. So I wanted to find out how well was it working in this part of southern Wisconsin. So um, I persuaded a couple of labor economists to uh, work with me and collected a bunch of data to try to look at what happened to people who had been laid off uh, around the time that the Great Recession was beginning in this part of southern Wisconsin and either did or did not go back to school. And it turns out that at least in this context at this time, retraining was not a panacea. So we were looking at simply who has a job. So if you look at this, before um, there's about a five-point uh, spread in people who uh, uh, later did or did not go back to school and how much people have been working. And if you look a few years <coughs> afterwards, there was a 10-point spread in which the people who had gone back to school were less likely to have a job afterwards. We were looking at how much are people working. The data that we mushed together to do this study um, didn't let me look at um, full-time and part-time work, but we could look at how many seasons of the year, how many quarters uh, people were working. And what it shows is that uh, people who worked consistently all four quarters of the year, the darker bar is, is people who did not retrain. So people were more likely to be working more time if they hadn't gone back to school. And over on the right, the light bar, um, uh, over a third of the people who had gone back to school had no work at all uh, by about four years after these jobs went away. How much were people making? Well, if you look at that top line about the $7,200 figure, um, those were quarterly earnings uh, before the start of the Great Recession. And you see people who eventually did or did not go back to school were making about the same amount of money. If you look at the bottom line of how much did incomes fall, that 35% drop were the people who did retrain. So, you know, this is pretty sobering. And if you want, we can talk some when we get to questions about what might have accounted for these findings that aren't kind of the popular wisdom about what a great idea retraining is. Um, but I thought this was an important thing to find out about at least what was going on in southern Wisconsin at this time. Second piece of work that I did with some other academics and folks at the University of Wisconsin was a survey of one county, of Rock County, where Janesville sits. We did it in 2013, and as it says, we were looking at um, what life was like, um, what people's economic attitudes and experiences were several years after these jobs had gone away and after the uh, recession had officially ended. And the first question you can see is, do you think the uh, country's economic recession is over, or do you think it's still going? Three-quarters of the people said they thought it was still going. This was in 2013. The official end of the recession was mid-2009. We asked people, thinking about your own home, are you in better shape or worse shape than you were five years ago, which was the start of the recession? Half the people said that they were in worse shape. And these were county residents as a whole, not just people who had lost jobs. What about the value of your own home? 
three quarters said that had lost value. If you've taken a new job for any reason, not just because you've been laid off, are you earning more or less than you had before? And if you look, half are earning less. And again, these aren't just people who had lost jobs. Anyone who changed jobs for any reason, the county. Just a quarter said they were earning more. Then we just tried to find out how prevalent was this job loss. And you can see that over a third of the people uh, who answered this survey uh, said that they or someone in their home had lost a job. So that's pretty deeply penetrating job loss in one county. And if you wanted me to get nerdy when we start talking about uh, you know, questions and answers, I can tell you about how we did the survey and we sponsored it, which is high and stuff like that. But you know, I think there's pretty good reason to have some faith in what we found. And then finally, um, we asked a series of questions just to people who said that they or someone in their home had lost a job. So you can see that um, three-quarters of the people said that they lost sleep. Almost two-thirds said that there were strains in their family. But the question that really broke my heart was that bottom line that says, did you feel embarrassed or ashamed about being out of work? Half the people said that they had. And I found that such a powerful finding, because it says to me that even if you're losing a job at a time when the United States was in the worst economic trouble it had been in since the 1930s, in a community where thousands of your neighbors are losing the exact same kind of work you are at exactly the same time, people take losing work personally. It's a really hard thing to have happen to you. So that's some of what I found. And I thought that I would just end by reading you a little bit of what the book sounds like. So I'm going to read um, just a page or so of a chapter towards the end of the book called Night Drive. Um, so I told you that Matt Wopat has been driving back and forth to Indiana every week for work for several years now. And um, this chapter is about his Friday night drive home. I'm just going to read you a little piece of the chapter. And I'm going to give away the secret before I read it, which is, yes, I was in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, get the hell out of here, a guy shouts as he bursts out the door and speed walks across the, ter- across the terracotta tiled lobby, barely slowing to slide his ID clock through the punch clock. Friday night at the Fort Wayne assembly plant. The end of the work week, the end of second shift, a nine-hour shift today with a lucky hour's overtime. So that's 11.45 p.m. as this guy is shouting, one guy among 1,100 GMers, pouring off the factory floor to start their weekends. Amid this horde, Matt Wopat reaches the lobby at 11.47 p.m., wearing a knit cap, a backpack slung over one shoulder. He's not running, but he too is walking very, very fast, a Friday night ritual. He reaches the chilly night air, and a co-worker wishes him a safe drive tonight. He stops for an instant at the 97 Saturn, which he parks in the same part of the vast lot every Friday, in middle row under a street lamp, so that he won't have to think about where he's left his car when he returns on Monday. He pulls his duffel from the trunk and continues walking very, very fast over to a nearby 2003 Pontiac Grand Prix already idling. In the driver's seat is Chris Aldrich, 
In the back seat, his coat scrunched up between him and the door, is Paul Sheridan. Janesville GM gypsies both. Chris pops the trunk for Matt to toss his duffel inside and slam the trunk shut before he gets in on the passenger side. Matt's door is barely closed when Chris guns the engine and roars off. 280 miles to go, four hours and 35 minutes, speeding just a little where they're pretty sure they will not get caught. Matt pulls out his phone, calls Darcy, that's his wife, calls Darcy to tell her they are leaving, same as he does every week. When Chris guns the engine, it's 11.54 p.m. in Fort Wayne, except that Matt is not the only one who stays on Janesville time, so the dashboard clock on the Grand Prix says 10.54. Chris started working at Fort Wayne on August 17, 2009, seven months before Matt. Chris will never forget that day. His wife and kids along to help him move, except he doesn't like to say he has moved, so he says that he stays in Fort Wayne. Anyhow, his family left on Monday morning when he went to the plant for orientation, which was during first shift, so he was back in this new apartment by 3.30 that afternoon, and he sat on a chair from a cheap dinette set they'd just gotten, staring at a wall. His wife and kids already back in Janesville. The worst feeling of his life. That was three and a half years ago. The Grand Prix had 47,000 miles on it. Now it has 134,407. On this night, they're not yet 10 minutes from the plant, about to turn on to Route 114, when Matt says in his quiet way, this is my three-year anniversary. Chris doesn't miss a beat. We aren't going to celebrate that, he shoots back. Matt already had texted Darcy before going to work. Happy anniversary to me, three years. And the reply had come back, has it been three years? Seems a lot longer. Darcy had added a sad face emoticon. Thank you very much. Well, Amy, thank you. That was uh, that was terrific. Um, I suppose I'll, I'll I'm going to open it up to questions in a second, but I'll kind of exercise uh, the chair's discretion um, and prerogative and, and ask the first question. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, let's say the three families that you follow in the book, um, how they thought about what happened to them. Um, and, and not just them, but Janesville more generally. I mean, how do they account for it or put differently? I mean, who do they blame? Do they blame... Do they blame themselves? Do they blame GM? Do they blame Washington? Do they blame China? I mean, how? What? When you were soaking and poking and you know, kind of, and talking to them, I mean, what's the what's the range of views? I suppose because there's probably not just one view on this. So let me answer that first through Matt's lens. Um, there's a scene in the story in which he's sitting in his truck in his own garage. Um, willing himself to back down his driveway and for the first time drive to Indiana. And I mean, this is all recounted. I mean, I wasn't there, but I called him many times. Like, I need a few more details. I need a few more details. And um, the reason this is relevant is that Matt described to me during that time wondering who he should blame for what had happened. And he can't figure out who to blame. 
He thinks about blaming General Motors. I mean, they're the ones that shut down the plant. But he says, you know, they were going to be bankrupt themselves within a year. They didn't have a choice. They kept the plant going longer. They kept some other plants going. And they paid me, uh, you know, post-employment benefits for a couple of years. So he couldn't figure out to blame them. Thinks about the federal government and says, well, they gave me all this money to go back to school. It's not the federal government's fault that there weren't jobs coming back yet. So he can't blame the federal government. And he kind of goes through this, and he finally says, he just looks into himself and figure out whether there's something that he could have done differently. And he can't figure out what he could have done differently. Now, I found that, you know, this is not a community of, you know, auto workers with a lot of higher education, but they're perfectly intelligent mm -hmm. people and pay attention to the world, and they know about NAFTA. Mm -hmm. But I found, um, I was surprised by how little anger I found. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were very immersed in what do I need to do next to make my life go okay. Right. Um, it was a very personal experience, not a political experience for them. I mean, and, um, you know, we can get into Paul Ryan a little bit if you want, but let me just say that a lot of people in town who are Democrats um, don't like Paul Ryan's politics, mm -hmm. but they thought he was a hardworking guy. Um, so they weren't particularly blaming the, their congressman. Um, so it was a funny thing that, you know, people were aware. And as you say, you know, different people. I mean, it's not like I don't know anybody who's angry. But I think that part of what explains this is, you know, I talked about this kind of homegrown um, industrialism. You know, local guy who had been a telegraphy instructor formed the Parker Penn Company local guy persuades General Motors to come to town a few decades later. So there's a sense of um, efficacy in this community that I don't think exists in all small towns, but people to a degree that surprised me at the outset felt like we're going to fix this. Mm. And I think that blunted what might otherwise have been higher degree of anger. And that's interesting. So maybe it might have been a little different if you were looking at a... So Janesville was kind of Hit, it was like a shock to the system, absolutely. As opposed to like a maybe, I'm trying to think of a you know a, a city that had been worn down over time. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't like this erosion or this corrosion. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, look, why don't we we open it up? Um, so if you raise your hands, um, I'm going to try to get in as many people as I can. I'll probably. Uh, group um, questions, take a few questions. Please introduce yourself. We'll start right down there with a woman right uh, right in front of you there. Go Do ahead. you think people are more sensitive to negative news? I'm sorry, to national news? Mm, about them, about people. Say that again? Do you think people are more sensitive about negative news? Negative, oh, negative news. Negative news. Okay, um, let's take a couple questions. What, this gentleman right here in the blue, uh, sweatshirt. Um, um, hi. Well, I don't know how that works. Okay, go ahead. We'll come back. I'll come back to you. Okay, go ahead. Um, you mentioned blue on too. Right. You mentioned that uh, retraining wasn't particularly effective. Did you find any other methods that could be more effective in uh, finding more jobs? One more question, maybe over on this side. We have a hand right here. Do you have your hand kind of up? Yeah, go ahead. Wait for the mic. Um, what, can you sec. all please introduce yourselves? I'd yeah, like so to know good if you give your name that. and not but your you, serial number, but if you're at the LSE or 
Um, my name is Agnes. I'm from Germany. I just started my MSc here in international relation. Um, I was wondering how these personal um, experiences um, were reflected in the voting behavior afterwards, if you talked like about local and national politics with your, uh, the people you interviewed. So okay. uh, let's stop there this round. So kind of voting behavior and retraining and negative versus positive yeah. news. Okay, well, I'm not going to try to integrate the answers. I'll just <laughs> right. do them sequentially. Um, so Janesville, um, as a big union town, tends to vote Democratic. And um, even though in the 2016 election, Wisconsin voted Republican uh, for Donald Trump, uh, it was the first time since the mid-1980s Wisconsin had gone Republican in a presidential election. Janesville did not. Uh, it voted for Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, I think that the community's union identity has outlasted union jobs so far. Um, and I'm going to be interested to see as time goes on, and there's another generation coming along that doesn't have a first-hand feel for these kind of, this kind of union work, what happens. But so far it's still a democratic place, more or less. Okay, retraining. Um, so um, if you read this book... Um, it doesn't end with a, um, and therefore the thing to do is, because I couldn't figure one out, um, and it wasn't sort of my purpose. Um, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm not an um, opinion writer, I'm a news reporter, kind of got on steroids this time. Um, uh, but I think it's really hard to figure out what to do, and um, through the story you see both Republican and Democratic political figures kind of walk on and off the stage across these five years. And nobody knows what to do. I mean, people are sort of saying things. Um, you know, Barack Obama, um, uh, I remember in 2012, the day before the presidential election, spoke in Madison. And um, uh, he was there with Bruce Springsteen, you know, this kind of working class emblem, <laughs> cultural emblem. Um, and Obama says, I'm paraphrasing, basically, isn't it great that my administration cured the auto industry? And I'm thinking, you're less than an hour north of Janesville and nothing's gotten cured there. So I think that, um, you know, when an economy approves or policies are adopted, they don't ripple evenly across everywhere. Um, I mean, Janesville's economy has been getting somewhat better. Um, the unemployment rate has fallen a lot. I mean, it's actually pretty low. Um, but that doesn't mean that pay has gotten better or that manufacturing has come back. Just people are doing other kinds of work that um, don't pay as much. So I don't, I don't have a very good answer um, for what else to do if this isn't a great solution. And I don't think that, you know, we can talk a little bit more about this, but I don't think that retraining... Um, you know, should be indicted across the board. I just think that this shows that in a context in which there's a really bad recession and jobs were slower to come back than people had anticipated because they were slower to come back than in other recent recessions in the United States, um, it's hard to retrain people when the jobs aren't there yet. And what do you think? Why do you guys focus on negative news? <laughs> um, I don't think... So I, I may be lying. Oh, I think that um, there's a lot of complicated stuff going on in the world. Yeah. And I think that 
is the role of journalists to pay close attention to what's happening, not to take sides, but just to say, this is what's going on. So we're going all the way to the back of the room, the guy in the center there. Yeah, wait, just wait for the mic and uh, just please introduce yourself first. My name is George, I'm a member of the public. Um, I was just um, interested in the book, there's a bit about uh, bringing in outside jobs and there seems to be a lot of competition about that. And it just feels like a bit of a zero-sum game. I don't know what you felt about, you know, when, I, know, I haven't finished the book yet so I don't know what the outcome is, but I was just wondering what your observations were about some of the sort of tax incentives and all that sort of stuff to, to try and bring jobs into the town. Well, thank you for reading the first half. <laughs> uh, let's take this woman right here and uh, this, yes you just hold your hand right there we go I just can't see you have like a black blouse I think right yeah so. <clears throat> hi I'm Denise Moylan I've worked in regeneration in North America and the UK and a lot of that is about intergenerational um, unemployment and the impacts of that just really curious in this instance what you found with the kids because I found them amazing in the story they were really inspirational and the girls who move on and I won't tell the story here but just curious what their perspectives were on what happened with their parents and where they see things for them in the future I'll take a question over here how about the woman right there yeah hi my name's Zoe I'm from New Zealand um, my question was you mentioned that you were surprised how little anger there was was there anything else that really surprised you or has stuck with you um, when writing the book yeah. why don't we take those three yeah. yep in any order you want yeah, so actually half of the answer, part of the answer to number three is the answer to number one, so this is fortuitous. Yeah. Um, so, because I'm not mainly a business writer, um, I don't think I had ever really focused before on how much money governments put up to try to lure jobs to their state or communities put up to lure, lure jobs to their community. Um, so that was something I learned doing this, doing this work. And... Um, you know, part of this notion of resilience or denial um, took the form of a really um, strong effort by the state of Wisconsin and the local governments in Janesville, the next town to the south, um, and the union and members of Congress. Um, they all got together to try to persuade General Motors to keep open the plant by giving Janesville a new small car to manufacture. Um, and this was the biggest economic incentive package that Wisconsin had ever offered any company to try to accomplish anything in terms of jobs. And um, all these folks, it was a very bipartisan effort. Um, they all really thought this was going to work. Um, and it didn't because Michigan, which had a much higher unemployment rate than Wisconsin at the time, put in much, much more money to offer to General Motors. Um, so I had various research assistants helping me as I was on lease for my job and kind of hovering around universities for office space. And, um, and I asked one of them uh, while I was drafting the manuscript to um, try to hunt up data on uh, what this whole recruiting auto companies thing looked like and how much money uh, other places had offered auto companies um, elsewhere in the United States to... Uh, you know that that had managed to succeed in either keeping a plant in town or bringing a plant to town or bringing a new product into a plant, and it was an awful lot of money. Um, so you know, I think you can debate 
what's worth it, and people do debate that. I mean, um, you know, I think that governors feel, um, and it was a Democratic governor at the time before Scott Walker was elected, um, a kind of a moderate Democrat. And I think that governors feel that creating jobs um, is one of their most fundamental missions these days, um, and that doing that kind of money offering is just intrinsic to that effort. Other people think that that's not a good idea. Um, but there's an awful lot of money that's got offered. Okay, so um, kids. Um, I really wanted um, to have one of the families I focused on include kids so I could write about what this experience was like for kids coming of age. And, um, and this is like another thing that I learned. So yours is a very handy kind of multi-purpose question I appreciate. Um, um, one of the things I learned is, and again, I don't want to generalize, so this is not true for everybody, but what I found often in Janesville is that when middle class people fall out of the middle class, they try as hard as they can to hide it. Um, you know, people want to keep up their, their appearances. Um, and it was true of kids. Um, there's a moment in the story when um, Casey Whitaker, um, I forgot to put on like the nice moody slide at the back of the... <laughs> so you're stuck with data for the rest of the evening. Um, um, uh, it works. It's the LSC. Yeah, okay, we've got the right tone for the right place. Um, um, when Kasia um, is introduced to the Parker Closet, this place the social studies place, uh, teacher created, um, and she is just blown away that this place exists inside her high school. And the thing that hits her the hardest and she starts crying, and she's not like a crying kid, is that if this room exists, other families must be struggling too. Now, she and her sister had not been discussing this with their friends. You know, so I think that this hit kids hard. Um, one of the things I learned was that um, Wisconsin has a kind of um, uh, alternative education program where you can do so self-paced uh, education under the kind of wing of a teacher, it's kind of an online thing. And um, it used to be that kids who just kind of struggled a little bit in a regular classroom found this appealing. But um, what the head of the teachers union who was involved with this program told me was that different kids were choosing it because unlike regular school, there, was no, there wasn't the same limit on how many hours kids could work during the school week as long as they were getting their online stuff done. And kids were wanting to earn a lot of money, um, either to buy their own cars because their families couldn't afford to buy cars, to save money for college if they were going to college. Um, so it really changed people's mm -hmm. sense of what you do as a teenager, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, this gentleman in the blue in the second row has been waiting for a long time. <laughs> Uh, Paul McGraw, Pax Christie, and uh, new, uh, Peace News. Just to pick up on your point about this, the way the states incentivize or, or try to attract new industries, um, as you may know, currently Wisconsin, uh, the, the ground's being broken for Foxconn, Foxconn yeah. which is um, now the figure is 13,000 new jobs. That's probably direct and indirect. Yeah. But it would seem to me that um, the the, the jobs in manufacturing, if they, they, if they come back to America, it's going to be a, a real, very competitive between the states. I mean, the car, 
car manufacturers have gone into South Carolina, Tennessee, right. because it's non-union. Not union areas, yeah. yeah. So there's definitely, there's, I mean, there's job, massive job vacancies in places like Austin and, and, and California in the new industries. But as you, as you touched upon, it's going to be a real, um, so problematic to find jobs in middle America for the people leaving school. Let me get some more questions. How about the woman way in the back, last row? Thank you very much. My name's Joe. I'm in the law department here at LSE. Uh, I have read the book both She was parts. in the elevator with us too, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've read the book uh, both halves, which are both riveting. Um, but they're also incredibly sad. Um, and there's a lot of detail there just in the extract that you read. You know, the miles on the clock, um, the text with the emoticon. Uh, and I wondered how you begin to get somebody's sort of permission and, and how you begin to work with people who are going through on your own data up, up on the screen at the moment, feelings of embarrassment, feelings of shame, over a period of years and you get mm -hmm. that data and you fully become confident that they know what you're doing and how you're going to use the material, very, very personal material and how you are happy uh, that they are not, uh, you're not, you're not adding to any of those feelings. That's a question about your method. How about the yellow jacket? Yeah. I'm Tiernan. I'm in the economic, I'm a research student in the economics department. Um, all of the stories that I recall seeing in the book, I read it almost a year ago now, so it's been a while, um, were about families who stayed in Janesville in one way or another and kept their roots there. Did you look at all at families who'd moved, um, particularly in the context of occupational, of, of mobility and how that has in the past been linked to economic growth in the U.S.? Okay. Go ahead. So meaty questions. <laughs> question. So um, on Foxcom, um, so Foxcom is um, a company to come uh, that's um, affiliated with a, a Korean company, right, that... Um, so to give you a little bit of the political context, um, Scott Walker, this conservative Republican governor, ran for the first time saying, I'm going to bring back a certain number of jobs. When he ran for election um, a few years, four years later, uh, the state was far below what he had promised in terms of added jobs. So he's felt a lot of pressure to try to bring in jobs. Um, I don't remember what the number is for how much the state is offering the company. Yeah, no, but it's, it, they're, they're sort of estimates that are out there. I just don't recall what they are. Um, and it's really polarized the state. Um, these jobs would be in eastern um, uh, Wisconsin, just a little bit north of the <laughs> Illinois line. And people in that part of the state think this is great um, if these jobs come. Um, people in more rural parts of Wisconsin and in state capital of Madison, which is quite a liberal place, um, think this is horrible. And Scott Walker's up for re-election again uh, in November. And I think that, I mean, the polls have shown it's pretty close. And I think that, I'm not sure the only way to read this election is through the lens of Foxcom, but um, I think that whether he wins or loses may hinge at least partly on that. And I should also say that when uh, the announcement was made that um, Wisconsin successfully recruited this company, um, bringing all these jobs, as you say, um, 
He actually, Walker, the governor, actually went to Washington to make the announcement standing alongside President Trump because President Trump's also been talking about we're going to bring back industry. Um, so kind of serve both their symbolic purposes. Um, so I think it's one of those time will tell things that partly what's gotten people really irritated who don't think this is good. And there are plenty of people who think it is good, but of those who don't, is um, some, fig some projections came out about um, if these jobs arrive, how many years it will take for the state to recoup its investment. And it's, I think, more years than people, I mean, nobody knew how many years, but it's, it struck people as like a fair number of years, and that was part of the political opposition to it for people who are on that side of this big debate. Okay, um, so I'm going to talk about mobility next. Am I allowed to change the order of the questions? You can. Yeah. Um, and then, like, how I do it. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, there's kind of this, I'm not going to say mythology, but there's sort of this widespread notion um, in theory that if jobs go away from one place, then the thing to do is to move to where there are jobs. So that's another answer to your question about what did I learn in Janesville that surprised me. Um, the population when I arrived was about 63,000 people. The population today is about 63,000 people. Um, so it's not that I don't know people who've moved, but moving is not the thing that people are mainly doing or wanting to do. Um, I mean, I know a few families who began as these kind of commuting gypsies. Um, they tended to be families with young children, and husband and wife was away during the week, and it was very hard on family life, and the rest of the family eventually moved to where the job was. Um, the two families that I got to know the best who, I mean, I got to know many more people in town than actually fit even into a book with a lot of characters in it. Um, these two families, they come back all the time. Um, and, you know, if you think about an auto plant that was there for that many decades and you kind of got a job by being handed a chit for an opening by somebody you knew, often a relative. There are all these extended families that worked at the plant or worked at these supplier companies. Um, so there's a big sense of rootedness in Janesville. Um, and, you know, if you arrive in town, um, it just looks like a place. I mean, it doesn't look like a paragon. It's just, it's a place. It's a small city in the mid Midwest. Um, you know, on that night ride, um, if I had read you to the bitter end of that chapter, you would have heard something that, you know, there were moments in the reporting of this. I mean, every word of this is reported. I mean, it's sort of, I wanted to read like it was novelistic, but it's all reported. And there'd be every once in a while a moment when I'd be just quietly listening to something and be like, that was great. And I had one of those moments at the end of this long drive. I mean, it was like three in the morning, and I was like struggling to stay awake and take notes on the back seat. And um, Matt told me that when they, they drop off one guy who lives on the south side of town, and Matt lives on the north side of town. And he told me they take, and there aren't that many different routes through town, you know, it's not that big a place. So they take different roads um, when they get home at night just because he likes to see the roads of his city. Mm. And I just thought, what a sense of attachment. So that's part of the answer about mobility. Okay, now to the question about how, you're basically asking, how do you win trust and not betray people, I think is what you're asking. How do you not make things worse? Um, so I had a luxury of time um, that I don't have with the newspaper story, even the long newspaper story. Um, 
I had no idea how much time this was going to take when I started. I might not have begun it, but it took like <laughs> nearly six years from start to when the book came out. Um, and so, like Mike Vaughn, I, I met him initially. He was very guarded. Um, and I didn't start pummeling him with emotionally hard questions right away. You know, I just sort of saw, okay, here's who he is, and I'll have an ad- another conversation later. So it was kind of bit by bit by bit. Um, of having people get, and I never, you might wonder, I never moved to Janesville. Um, the closest I came was I spent a little more than a semester um, camped at the University of Wisconsin Madison, which is uh, less than an hour away. Um, Janesville's south of Madison. Um, so I had very good proximity to Janesville. I spent a lot of time with that semester. I also got um, the survey that I talked a little bit about started while I was out there. Um, and after that, I. Um, kept coming back for visits. Um, sometimes I emailed somebody for a detail. Um, the other thing that I, this is another answer to what did I learn. Um, uh, I found that I would not have anticipated is how hard it is to deal with how bad people's memories are even when they're trying to be as helpful as they can. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a real problem. Um, I mean, none of our memories are any good. <laughs> um, you know, even about things that matter to us. So I found that I had to do a lot of research around what somebody was telling me. Let me just give one example of that. So I knew that, as I mentioned, um, Marv Wopat, the dad, had his retirement party uh, not long before his son was going to lose his job. Well, between the two of them, they couldn't remember exactly which week Matt lost his job. I mean, they knew that he went down, he was in the first of these two shifts that went down. But he got to stay an extra couple of days because his anniversary date was right on the cusp of when he'd been able to stay another few months, several months till the end or not. But they couldn't remember which week it was. So I'm like plowing through old clippings of the Janesville Gazette to figure out like which week it was. So then I could add five work days, you know. Um, and I went back to them and said like, does this make sense? And that would have made it X number of weeks since your retirement party. And like, yeah, that all works. You know, so I, I couldn't make things up for people, but I, I did a lot of, you know, kind of triangulating to figure things out. So let me just make one more point about not traumatizing people. Um, and this is like not a lesson you learn about how to be um, like a decent human being as a journalist, but in every family, um, there was inevitably somebody who thought it was really interesting that I cared this much about what was going on in their family and wanted to be as helpful as they could. And there'd be somebody else in the family who wanted nothing to do with me or less to do with me. In some cases, it was almost nothing. In some cases, it was less. And I had to figure out, like, what do I do about this? I mean, I can't, like, leave out a spouse. I can, you know. And I just decided that I was not going to force the issue um, because, it's you know, one of the things when, you know, I've done a lot of mentoring of young journalists, and one of the things I always tell people is that you really need to be reporting with your emotional intelligence and not just with your, you know, mm-hmm. theoretical intellect. Um, and I figured that if I started pushing reluctant people too hard, then the cooperative spouse would start defending the uncooperative spouse and the whole thing would be spoiled. So I just said, you know, it's okay. There may be some things I need to know, like if you, the cooperating husband, can tell me things about the little bit shyer wife 
as long as I know it in the end and she can sort of say, yeah, that's not a lie, you know, <laughs> it's okay. So it was really a matter of, um, you know, kindly but also in a manipulative way managing relationships for a long period of time. And sometimes what was kind on the surface was also good for the book, you know, and I'm mindful that I'm doing both those things. You know, I'm trying not to be a jerk, but I also need to know what I know. And there were people inevitably also had one or a couple things that they shared with me they did not want me to write. And, you know, I had to decide, um, was I going to negotiate hard or was I going to say, okay. And, again, no one tells you, like, where do you put the bar on that? But I, I fundamentally came to the decision that if it was a detail that I didn't need to make the point, and the point was really clear anyhow, I wasn't going to worry people. So that's some of it. Cool. How about this guy right up here in the front? Wait one sec. <clears throat> I'm Jacob Kunzler. I'm studying economics here. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned before about people caring a lot about maintaining their appearances. <coughs> I'm curious to know <clears throat> what that meant for their uh, for a household's spending habits. Did they go into debt to maintain a lifestyle that they maybe could no longer afford that they could before? Were there categories that they cut in, categories that yeah. they had a harder time cutting in? Yeah, okay, good question. Uh, how about the woman back, second row from the back, right in the center? We'll probably have time for, I'll take maybe four questions, go ahead. Hi, I'm Leonie from the University of Exeter. Um, I was really interested, you've talked a lot about the stories that you've had to pull together, and I, I guess my question is kind of a stylistic one. What was your experience of writing this as a book as opposed to a series of news reports, and, and do you feel that that was a space to be able to do justice to this in a, it better? In a, in a was it was the last part? Do you feel like that was a space to be able to do justice to this kind of issue better, okay. more, more powerfully? This gentleman down here on my left, uh, you have to wait for the. Well, we're waiting for you. How about the woman right there in the black sweater? Hi, my name's Lillian. I'm from Iowa, so not too far from Janesville. So this all really resonated with me. So thank you for uh, sharing this story. My question is you mentioned at the beginning that there were more men than women that lost their jobs, and this has been nicknamed the man recession. Um, did you notice differences in responses to the job loss or the changes in Janesville from men and women? And was there like a greater sense of insecurity for men who had lost their jobs, um, kind of the way jobs are connected to their masculine identity? Like, what differences did you notice there? Okay. The one, one question right here. Yeah. Um, hi, my name's uh, Colin. I'm an undergraduate here. I'm just wondering... Um, you mentioned at the beginning um, that you've held a lot of different positions, you know, working in things like healthcare, or the Supreme Court, or the White House, um, these sort of big picture issues. Um, but I think when we think about those issues, we don't think of Jamesville. Jamesville, we think of, you know, what's happening in Washington and not much beyond that. So I was wondering if there's any sort of insights you have as to aspects of these big picture issues that are particularly magnified in a place like Jamesville, but 
that are forgotten when we talk about it in the national conversation? Mm. That's a great question. Okay. Okay, so you got four really good questions yeah. there. And, and that'll probably bring us right up to where we need. Okay, I'll try to be on time. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay maintaining appearances. Um, so... I'm sorry, I, I, I can't read my own handwriting here. I said maintaining appearances and what it meant for, oh, for spending habits. Okay, so we're spending habits that I was just struggling with. Um, so one of the things I um, started hearing when I first started paying visits to Janesville was that this is a place where people live pretty well. I mean, it was not, um, it's not uncommon in the United States for people to spend more than they're saving. Um, and uh, not everybody, but there were a number of people who had boats, who had cabins up north for vacations. And um, this was before I got out there, but apparently there were like these just neighborhoods with like boats in the driveway for sale. Um, when I started going out there, there were a lot of houses for sale that weren't selling. Um, so I think it was sort of these things that made life kind of nice that people shed very quickly. Um, so that's one way of answering the question. Another way of answering the question comes from some of the survey work um, that I did with the University of Wisconsin. Um, because we asked questions in, you know, in terms of, I, mean, I was giving some of the sort of psychological and emotional ans uh, questions that we asked, but we also asked things like, what did you do? Um, did you uh, avoid medical care because you couldn't afford it? High rates of that. Um, people were very reluctant to um, apply for government help. Um, you know, people borrowed money a little bit from relatives. Um, I know of some families where, you know, middle-aged parents moved in with young adult kids. Um, so, you know, people were kind of restructuring their housing. Um, but, I mean, it's not that nobody applied for, you know, food stamps or things like that. But, I mean, it's kind of a corollary to kids keeping up appearances, not wanting their friends to know their families were struggling. People just, you know, their identities. I mean, it goes back to that story I did a few years before in southwest Florida. Um, people were shocked. They're just shell-shocked to find themselves in the welfare line. It's not a comfortable thing to do to apply for public assistance when you've been a middle-class person your whole life. Okay, writing a book as a book. So when I started, um, I wasn't sure I was writing a book. Um, I didn't know whether I was writing some long-form magazine pieces. Um, I used to refer to it as the project um, because I had never written a book before, so I called it a B-O-O-K because I was nervous about the word book. Um, and several months in, I just thought, you know, if I'm ever going to write a book, I'm staring at one. This feels like a very big, powerful story. Um, you know, I'm not mainly in my newspaper job a narrative writer. I mean, I have colleagues who are narrative writers. Um, that's what they do. I've done a little bit of that. But I had to really figure out what I wanted my writing voice to sound like. Um, it took a little while. I had book agents who were um, kind of brilliant and tormenting. And um, when I was working for a long time on a book proposal, they kept reworking it, and I kept saying, no, it's not, 
Does anyone know the Frank Capra movie is a wonderful life? Mm -hmm. I kept saying, this is not a wonderful life. It can't be that seriously sounding. And they're like, it's just a proposal. I'm like, no, it's got to be reported. It's got to sound authentic to how I hear language. So it took me a while to figure that stuff out. Um, but it was really my agents who helped me think through the structure and told me that I really needed to write a chronological character-driven narrative. And I kind of gasped at that because I said, um, I haven't done that before. And I've got a problem because I showed up in 2011 and the story is to start with the plant closing announcement in 2008 and I wasn't there for that. And I need, if I'm going to aspire to do this kind of a chronology, I need it all to feel equally vivid. You know, the stuff I can see with my own eyes and the stuff that I had to reconstruct that I wasn't there for. And these agents kind of looked at me and said, well, that's your work, isn't it? <laughs> um, okay, men versus women losing jobs. Um, so in the job retraining analysis, um, we actually poked pretty hard at whether there were um, gender differences in... Um, rates of people going back. I mean, men and women worked at these factories. Um, um, uh, differences of people going back to school, the fields people studied in, whether people completed work or not. Um, and there was bizarrely nothing interesting to say about gender differences, so I didn't. Um, you know, I think that, you know, in some, and again, I don't want to generalize, because I think every family is different under any circumstance, but... Um, I know um, a not small number of families in Janesville in which, say, um, the husband was a GMer, you know, making good wages, and the wife was a teacher. So the wife had the job and the husband, they were down to one income, and it was the husband who was out of work. So I think that, you know, took some adjustment. Um, some people adjusted better than others. Um, uh, Divorce has happened. I mean, basically, losing work is not good. I mean, it's not good for your quality of life in a whole lot of ways. Um, you know, I showed quickly that one question about strains of families. I mean, the divorces were not uncommon. I mean, you know, I, it, I had to think about not just the question of, like, these different choices people made, but kind of what level of how bad did I want the families I was writing about to be? Um, you know, I could have written about families that absolutely lost their houses. Um, I could have written about families that absolutely recovered. I could have written about a family that divorced. I mean, there's one uh, woman in the book from a, a, not one of the main families, but a few other workers in the story, um, who commits suicide. She just makes a whole succession of bad choices after looking like she's actually recovered very well from having lost her first job and then just blows it and takes a drug overdose. Um, you know... And I decided ultimately that I wanted to pick families that were clearly having a hard time, that were intact, that were strong families, um, and where you could identify them as trying. I mean, I think that's what's in common among these families. Okay. Um, big national issues and um, how it trickles down. I guess is that how I'm going to frame that question. So I do a lot of my reporting as a Washington reporter. Um, but as much as I can, which isn't a lot these days, but sometimes is more, um, I try to do stories out around the country about what something looks like. 
Um, I mean, I've always been somebody who I think, you know, I've done a lot of different kinds of journalism in my career, but I think the heart of what I think of as what I do is writing about kind of the nexus of, you know, kind of the border between public policy and politics and how both filter down to people's lives. Um, I mean, that's why I write things like healthcare because it really matters to people's lives. Um, I started out as a local news reporter. I worked at a couple papers before the Washington Post. I spent 10 years as a local news reporter at the Washington Post. And I think how things affect communities and individuals is like what policymaking is all about. Um, so in the last couple of years, for instance, I did a story out of East Tennessee about um, a town that lost its rural hospital and just what that was doing to the community. Um, I did a story earlier this year um, if any of you follow health policy in the United States, um, the whole question of Medicaid, which is public insurance for the poor, um, for the first time the current administration is encouraging states to think about requiring people to work in order to get Medicaid. These Medicaid work requirements are a very big policy question now in Washington. Um, so I did a story um, out of Kentucky last winter, which was the first state to get federal permission um, to uh, create Medicaid work requirements, finding people who might be affected about them and talking to people in the state government to kind of create this story that was kind of these dual perspectives of the state government thought this was good for people, thought it was gonna help people get jobs and get out of poverty and people who are on Medicaid who were really worried about this. So, um, you know, as I said before, so jokingly, I mean, this story about Janesville is kind of on steroids, but I don't think it's hugely different from the way I think about doing journalism in the rest of my career. Well, that's a great place and way to to um, to end it. I know we could go on all night. I, there were a lot of questions. I apologize to people who did not get a chance to um, put their question to uh, Amy. You will actually have another. You can kind of try to sneak it in if you go outside <laughs> during the uh, the the book signing. Um, I, I want to thank everybody for um, coming this evening. And Amy, I want to thank you for coming and, and sharing this really very important story. Um, please join me in, in thanking Amy Goldstein. And I was going to. I, I did. It was just so. Um, so now we're done, and I, I can do this, because I was going to say, you know, it's amazing that uh, we were here for an hour and a half talking about something that really matters to the United States, and his name did not come up once. <laughs> the only person who brought it up was you in the context of Scott Walker, but there, there wasn't one question about it, but I know... I know that you you need your fix. And so on the 7th of November, we'll be doing a roundtable um, to the day after the election, making sense of the midterms. So please come join us on the 7th. Thank you. <laughs>